Well, thank you so much for coming, all of you. It's very encouraging to me to know that, uh, at least potentially, I'm not alone in finding Augustine absolutely fascinating. But I would like to start by telling you a word about why he actually really matters to all of us as Christians. Um, the, the great principle of the Church of England in all sorts of ways is all may, none must, some should. And I would say that that applies to Augustine very much. Nobody has to do it. Uh, some of us ought to do it, but all of us can investigate him if we choose to. Um, I think it's very brave of the people organising these talks to put Augustine first, because I have to tell you, if you don't know already, he does not have the greatest reputation. I once wrote in a review of a an, an theological book um, that the writing, that, uh, writing a book called um, The Theological Perspectives of St Augustine on Feminism would be a really short story. And, um, and I was challenged to write it. I haven't got around to it yet, but he doesn't come out very well from the point of view of his reputation. But I want to tell you that that is desperately unfair. Um, and not just because he wrote lovely Latin, although that is part of the, part of the reason that I think he's so special. Um, if I can start with some of the things you might know about him already. I've called him Augustine of Hippo to make sure nobody mixes him up with Augustine of Canterbury, who is the actually, I think, rather dull saint who, <laughs> who they celebrate down in Canterbury somewhere. But, um, but Augustine of Hippo is known as one of the great doctors of the church, the church's greatest theologian uh, of the Latin-speaking type. There are lots of good theologians over in the East writing in Greek, but uh, only Augustine in Latin um, stands out head and shoulders above the rest. Um, now, that makes him sound a little bit intimidating and also um, possibly a bit off-putting. And if that's a problem already, let me compound the problem, uh, because he has a really bad reputation when it comes to talking about sex. You could say that of the church as a whole, of course, as well. Um, particular reasons are two. One is theology. He was perpetually interested in what evil is. And he was always interested in reading the opening chapters of Genesis to try and work out why. And it, he's mostly responsible for the Christian take on what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, um, because he's the person through whom we come to understand it as the fall. The fall of man, you've often heard it called. Um, and there are other ways of understanding that passage from the very beginning of the Bible, and you can ask a rabbi if you want a very different take, but Augustine's has become the norm. And that has had two really unlucky effects for uh, Christians afterwards. One is that sex has become associated with evil and sinfulness. Uh, and the other one is that human beings are helpless to do good on their own. Those don't look like they go together very closely, but um, we've got a brain as big as Augustine's. Uh, it starts to make connections. So those two things are the principal reasons why people find him difficult or they put, put off by him. And you can see this at work if you take a look at the two most famous quotations that are associated with Augustine. And I have to say, if I'm talking to Christians about Augustine, I use one quotation. And if I'm talking to non-Christians, I use the other one. Um, but they all recognize them. If I'm talking to non-Christians, you won't be at all surprised to hear that the famous quotation is, 
Lord, make me chaste and continent, but not yet. That's the one that everybody knows if they don't go to church. If they do go to church, if you were at Mass this morning, you will have heard his most famous quotation. Almighty God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I have to say that um, among all the over-quoted and misunderstood passages, this is not one. It really is as beautiful and special and applicable to all of us as it sounds like. You have made us for yourself, he says to God, and our heart is restless, inquietum, unquiet, until it rests in you. I find those words very powerful and I'm not alone. So I want to talk to you a little bit about him through that reputation he has. I want to touch on the kind of theology that he did in his life, because he's most famous uh, in Christianity as a doctor, a teacher in the church. And what that means is that he wrote a lot of extremely long books, most of which most Christians have never read. And even some academics like myself um, haven't read as many of them as we're supposed to. Uh, the biggest of the lot is called City of God, and it really is a fundamental work for European political thought, because it asks, what is society? What is human society? And what works for its flourishing? And how does the society we live in here on Earth relate to the one we think is going to happen to us after death? So that's one of the most famous of his theologies, and I'll say a little bit about that. Another one is his writing on the Trinity, which um, <clears throat> I haven't entirely read, I have to admit, <laughs> partly on the grounds that I find theology, proper theology with a capital T, I find it a bit dull. Um, but I do really like what I would call embedded theology, theology which grows out of people's experience and which we understand through reading about history and texts, what people said and how they said it. I don't really believe in lifting a saying out of a text and then sticking it somewhere else and doing what you like with it, which is what a lot of theology tends to do. Another thing that came to preoccupy him much later in his life, and to be honest with you, is the biggest uh, downside to enjoying Augustine, is his teaching on grace, free will and predestination. You can't really understand him without getting all of that. And Augustine was somebody who, like many of us, started off believing in free will. Of course I've got free will. I chose to come here this morning. Um, and I chose to sit and listen to the Stravinsky Mass and the preaching and learn a bit about the Ten Lepers, and you chose to come and listen to me. But there are other forces at work which we don't always choose. Why was I a Christian who wanted to come in the first place? Uh, how did I make the choices that led me to where I am today? And he, the more he struggled with it, the more he came to see that actually human freedom is a kind of illusion. And at this point, we have to put the brakes on and switch off that little element in our brains, which is the child of the Enlightenment and thinks that free will and predestination are two sides of a coin. They're just polar opposites that just are, um, because we've been brought up to believe that. Augustine didn't think like that, and nor did anybody else in his day. Not the poets, not the theologians, not the philosophers. They had a sense that you can have a human will that's the thing by which you choose stuff. You choose to wear, I choose to wear black today because I'm doing a priestly kind of thing. Um, those are the things that you choose. But there are also things that you can't choose, like how rich your parents are. There's a really good example. Or what school they choose to send you to. Um, so 
in any individual human life, there are two things that go together. And we have elements of freedom and we have elements of compulsion that are not within our choice. And he thought that was obvious. I think it's obvious. Um, but for a theologian proper, sometimes that becomes an either or and you have to choose one or the other. Um, so if you're a person who thinks you can either have free will or you can have predestination, it's all written in the stars before you're born. Um, Either, either extreme gives you a problem. Saying both is quite difficult. But what he didn't chicken out of was asking the question and trying to answer it. And if you want to know what fundamentally I most think is important about Augustine, it's that he never backed away from a difficult question about God. And that, to me, is absolutely the heart of it. I mean, I love him for the beautiful words that he wrote, but most of all, I love him because he never lied to himself about what mattered. And that's very, very rare. So I want to talk about all those things in the <clears throat> not very much time I've got. But um, there's one thing that comes before all of it. And that's the book that I've done the most work on. I brought my translation of it with me today, just in case I need to refer to it in the questions. And that's called The Confessions. It's his most famous writing. And it's absolutely unique in the history of all the literature that's ever been written in Europe. I can't speak for world literature because I haven't read it all, but I know that within the European tradition, it stands front and centre. It's a book that's never not been read since the day that it was written. And why is it special? It's special because it's none of those things that I just told you about, except that it's about the truth. Because I get a bit sad when I'm reading Augustine's theology. When I see him as a bishop, which he never wanted to be, by the way, he thought being a bishop was a lousy job and nobody sensible would want it. And he actually got tricked into becoming Bishop of Hippo, which is a bit like becoming um, Bishop of Bognoregis or something like that. It's just not a sexy place. <laughs> and there he was. He was stuck there for the rest of his life because once you were a bishop somewhere, you didn't move. And he accepted that as God's will. but. I think it made him miserable. And some of his theology is a struggle. It's a struggle because you read in it a man who finds it difficult to endure some of the stuff that bishops had to do in those days, which was about um, intervening in disputes between Christians and deciding who got to live or die in courts and things like that. It was, it was a tough job. And it didn't leave a lot of time for Bible study or prayer. I don't know how he managed. But in Confessions, he, he wrote it 10 years after his conversion, but before he became this grand, important um, spiritual leader in the church. In Confessions, he strips away all the stuff about responsibilities, obligations, all the things that bind us to the earth when we become adults as Christians. Our obligations to one another within the faith community, our obligations to our friends, to our family, all that. It's not about any of that. It is about, as he would say in the text, me and you. It's about him as an individual human being and God. And in all the works that precede it, in Greek and Latin culture and literature, there is nothing like it. I've read quite a lot of them, and I've enjoyed the literature a lot. Livy and Cicero and Virgil and Homer and all the rest of it. But I never felt that I met the person, ever. 
You don't meet the person, you meet their creation, but you don't meet them. Not with Augustine. With Augustine, you are entering into the interior life of the mind. The kind of things that you think about, that you're probably thinking about now while I'm talking. How does this relate to me? Or when's she going to stop talking so I can ask a question? Or whatever it is, there's an internal dialogue that goes on, on in all our heads all the time. But we don't share it with anybody except God occasionally. And that's what Augustine did in Confessions. It's quite extraordinary. So I'll give you one word of advice if you want to uh, dip into Confessions and read it for yourself. Um, don't be put off at the beginning by the fact it's got lots of scripture quotes in it. Because when Augustine gets extremely emotional about how he loves God, he'll put, he won't speak in his own words always. He'll sometimes use words of scripture. And I tend to skip those bits when I'm not reading seriously because I want to know what he thinks. I already know what the Bible thinks. I want to meet the man. So I would suggest don't be put off by that. Just keep reading and you will meet this extraordinary person who can become not just a teacher. He's not just a teacher to me. He's a friend. And I remember him in my prayers every Sunday when I take communion because he asked me to. If you get to the end of Confessions, when he talks about the death of his mother, he says, um, I hope that my brothers and people who read my book here will um, pray for my mother, Monica, and for her husband, Patricius, because that's the last gift he can offer them. So I thought, that's a fair deal. He's given me so much, I'll do that for him. And so I do. In Confessions, we are not meeting the grand, important public figure. We are meeting, in a sense, we're meeting ourselves. Um, He's not different from us just because he was clever or he lived a long time ago. He's just like us because he struggles with the same questions about morality and ethics and about the existence of God and the meaning of life and evil um, and about free will and predestination or about human society. It's all there um, in his exploration with God. Now, I, I thought it might be helpful because... Um, I find that when I go away from a talk thinking, wow, I'm hopeful here, wow, that was really interesting, I must find out more about Augustine, uh, I instantly forget everything that I've heard because I've reached that age where my memory just doesn't work anymore. Um, and that's why I, I've got this prepared for you, um, which you're welcome to leave behind if it's not your cup of tea. But if it is, please take it away and um, there won't be time to go through it today, but I hope it'll whet your appetite for learning more about the man. Um, and I wouldn't mind betting that it's the stuff he talks about in his childhood which will press the most buttons for you, which is why I've put that down um, on the front of the sheet. I've just said you'll see the little headings, the pressures of family, turbulent adolescence, and then stealing pears. Nothing sounds more trivial than the stealing pears, and let me tell you, nothing turns out to be more important and significant in his spiritual journey. Life for Augustine was quite comfortable. He was brought up in a respectable, ordinary, boring sort of household. His mother was a Christian and his father was um, a pagan who converted to Christianity just before he died. I think his wife must have nagged him into it because she certainly nagged his son. Um, she's a difficult woman, Monica, but she had her own problems, so we, you know, we mustn't judge. So he was brought up in this comfortable family and he was brought up to expect um, 
a respectable career and a good job at the end of it and a marriage and children because that's what people wanted in those days. It's not so different from what we want now. And he was partly okay with that, but there was also a big element in his life which was not okay with that, which was not interested in what we might call the things of this world because he was driven by this inner voice that said to him, life has got to be about more than this. This cannot be all there is. I need to understand what matters. And so he tried it out. He tried my, my good friend, I should like to call him Cicero, uh, that great orator of the ancient world, and he found lots of wisdom in Cicero, um, but it wasn't right for him. And he tried a form of religion called Manichaeism, uh, which was a bit better because it seemed to have some kind of esoteric or spiritual side to it, which you don't get in classics. Um, but that wasn't right either. And he kept on looking and he could not convince himself that he'd found the truth. And indeed he hadn't. But in fact what was going on was a really big struggle between the person he wanted to be and the person he knew he ought to be. And if that sounds familiar, I'm not surprised because I think that's something we all encounter. He wanted to be clever, successful, respected, famous. That was just as big a catch in those days as it is in our time. He wanted all those things. He wanted a normal family life, a wife and children. He had a life partner. She's usually called, if you read the stories about Augustine, he, she's usually called um, his concubine, which is a Latin word meaning bed partner. And that means somebody who was born in the wrong rank of society. They couldn't actually marry. There was no legal form for him to marry her. But they lived together. And they went through a form of connection to one another. And he loved her with all his heart. They had a son together. And it was a big giveaway that their son was called Ardeodatus, which means given by God. That's a bit of a giveaway. I think God was always in there as part of the equation. And he thought he could only be happy with the kind of family relationships um, that he experienced with that concubine, whose name we don't know. But something was pulling him in another direction, and he couldn't fight against it. He didn't really try, but he couldn't fight against it. Uh, and there came a time when he was, I think what we would call it, we'd call it a breakdown. He found himself in a garden with his friend Olypius, just in a state of utter desperation that he did not know how to live his life, he did not know what to choose. And it's something that I myself have found, um, you know, obviously personally it speaks to me, but in my job as a, um, a pastor to young people in the university, they are at a stage of life that Augustine reached, where they're having to make choices, they're having to leave the safe world where you're, you're sort of just passing through your three years or four years at uni, and suddenly they've got to find a job and a house. And they've got to be grown up and sensible and pay gas bills and stuff like that. And suddenly it all becomes really difficult because they think, is this it? Is this what my life is going to be? And it shouldn't just be about gas bills and jobs. We all know deep down that we, we have these talents and capacities and questioning that make us what the Bible would call um, little lower than the angels. And that's not um, hubris, that's not vanity on our part. That's simply what we're taught to believe. We ought to trust that we are special and that we matter and that not one hair of our head falls to the ground 
apart from our father. And Augustine believed that with his intellect, but he hadn't yet learned to believe it with his heart. And that's why he came so close to this breakdown. And he, he was lying on the ground in the garden in desperation when he hears that voice saying, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. And he thinks, whose voice is that? Can it be, can it be a child next door? But no, there isn't a child next door. And no, what, why would somebody say something like that? I haven't just misheard or anything. And he went back indoors and he did what people do with their Bibles. I bet you've all done it. He picked up his Bible and flipped it open to see where it opened, where his eye fell. If you haven't, it's worth a try. You get some interesting answers. And his eye felt, fell on take no thought for the flesh. Uh, he suddenly realised, reading St Paul, that what he had to do was to put away licentiousness and what the old translation calls rioting, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And suddenly, the crisis melted away and he was left in this state of utter relief that finally he knew where his life was going. It's an incredibly moving and exciting story and much better when he tells it than when I tell it because what we all do, when, like when we listen to the Bible, we bring ourselves to it. You will find yourself in his story, I promise you. Um, but what I want to spend the last 10 minutes that I've got sharing with you is some of the things that he says about prayers and prayer. Because, you know, I could tell you about his view of why God is three persons and one substance and stuff like that, and some of you might even be interested. But um, that's really difficult to describe and explain and justify in the course of five minutes. But in a sense, anybody who comes to this talk, I'm, I'm guessing pretty much all of us are going to be in one way or another experts in prayer. You probably don't feel like experts, but if you've been doing it for a long time and if you've done it on your own and done it in church, you're an expert. And that's what um, I think it would be helpful if you, if you don't mind turning to the third page. Just take a look at what he says about prayer. It's what I've labelled number three. Now, I'm not going to read all these out for you because I always find that very annoying when people do it in talks. And I, the point is not that you listen to me reading Augustine, but that, that uh, you take this away and think about Augustine. I'm just going to put a couple of ideas before you that perhaps we can talk about. One is that we are not very good at learning to pray. And I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that the church isn't very good at teaching us. The reason, I think, is because most of us get our models for how to pray from being in church at services, when the whole congregation is praying to God together, or perhaps a priest is doing it on our behalf, or a reader or some other minister is doing it on our behalf. And, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Augustine did that every day of his life. And he tells us almost nothing about his worshipping life because that's too secret and private um, and people didn't talk about it to outsiders so um, we don't really know a lot of it but we have to reconstruct it from sources it's quite tricky but we know that he prayed and he used set forms of prayer just like we do in church and some of them were pretty close to what we use today not surprising at all but what we don't do now, and it wasn't easy to do then, until you get to Augustine's Confessions, was to connect up the prayer that we pray corporately with the prayer that we pray privately. 
How do those two relate to one another? Because if the only way we learn to pray is through um, church services and things, it's going to be really difficult. You might learn, Almighty God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But you won't learn ways of feeling comfortable in God's presence when there's nobody else there. Or being able to talk to him or not talk to him and just be in his presence. And what we get in this section three I've given you is first of all, him talking to God about prayer, describing to God how it feels when he prays. And I know this is setting the bar pretty high because Augustine did have visions of God himself. He's very, very cautious in confessions about telling us what he sees and how much he sees. But he does tell us that he has been in the divine presence through prayer. Um, I'm afraid I can't claim a like holiness, but um, it's still good to read about how he experienced it. And he gives us these descriptions in those first three paragraphs. I think of the three of them. Um, the third is the one that I like the best because it's so simple. He says that the light, the divine light is like oil on water. Um, it just floats there. And it was greater than that because it made me. And I was a lesser because I was its creation. Now to me, and I don't think this is just wishful thinking because I work on him. To me, these are the words of somebody who shows absolute authenticity in his faith. I don't have any doubt in my mind that he was thinking, oh, this is the kind of thing I should be writing if I want to get a better bishopric or anything like that. He's just telling us how he feels about God. And what I've given you at the end, which, again, I, there really isn't time for me to talk through, are three prayers that he actually prayed in the course of confessions. One begins, O eternal truth, true love, and beloved eternity. One is the most famous of the three. Late have I loved you, O beauty so old and so new. And the third one, which is my favourite, O truth, light of my heart, do not let my darkness speak to me. And if you want prayers to say, it's, I don't know about you, but I find it really difficult to read prayers out of books because it, prayer means this normally. And if you're trying to read it out of a book, you're usually doing that and trying to do both at the same time. And it's quite tough. But when I read these words and read them slowly and just let them flow through my mind, I find myself getting a little bit of a glimpse of what it was that Augustine experienced and saw. And again, I would suggest to you, I mean, you could read this quite cynically and think he's just talking about how he thinks it ought to feel. But I can't help thinking myself like a scholar. And I'm thinking when I read a text like Late Have I Loved You, or Beauty So Old and So New, when I read that, I'm thinking, right, what's like it already? What's he modelling himself on? Because any act of creative writing in his world is modelled on something else. Is he drawing on the Psalms, on the other bits of scripture? Is he drawing on classical poetry? And I, look, I, I run it through my mind and I think, no, he's not, running, he's not taking this from anywhere. There isn't anything like it anywhere. This has all come out of his own acts of prayer and conversation with God, which is mind-blowing. You know, it's, it's like being Isaac Newton, um, just sort of seeing about the refraction of light in a prism or just realising what gravity is. Um, th 
I'm not, not saying he didn't do a long lot of mathematics as well, but, but he had the clarity of vision to put that in words that made sense of the experience, that it described it properly. And these are the, I mean, there's loads of prayers you can find from the ancient world. There's prayers in scripture, there's prayers in the church fathers, there's lots and lots of, of scraps of Eucharistic prayers and things like that that some of our own modern ones are modelled on. But there's nothing like these, and these are like the kind of prayers that I think real people really pray. They're quite extraordinary. They express a sense of need, a sense of unworthiness, but not a sense of worthlessness. And that, I think, is the key thing. Augustine knows how far he's fallen short of the glory of God, but he also knows that it's that understanding that he isn't perfect, that there's nothing that he can do to deserve it, that makes him a beloved child of God. And that's why, for me, um, he is the best model I know for how to learn to pray. Um, something I often talk to people about, um, I often talk to students who are looking to uh, explore their prayer lives. And students particularly find words helpful um, because having something to follow means that you can use it as a springboard and you can, you're not supposed to be confined by those words, you're supposed to go out and find your own. And, um, and they do, because these words speak to everybody, I think, who reads them. I must be honest, it might be possible that some of you think, well, I tried that and it didn't really work for me. Um, and if that's the case and you find other writers and other thinkers more helpful in your Christian journey, that's absolutely fine. I'm not saying that everybody um, has to follow the Augustinian model, but I would say to you that outside the Bible itself, if you want a Christian teacher who can help you on your journey and help you to understand who you are and how you relate to God, then Augustine is a really good place to start. I think I'd better stop there, hadn't I?